I heard you say in an interview that you you experience it in the top right. Uh, yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, it's it's kind of when I go delusional. A lot of people see things maybe they're in the room, but what I do, it's just it like appears in like the top right or the top left of my head, and it's just like I kind of zone out looking up. And that's where I enter a whole other world of delusion. And I'm just no longer present. It's just like there. It's it, it's another it's another place that I've entered, you know? Because I feel like, to me, if it's straight on, it's reality. If it's up in the air and it's not there, it's, it's the fake delusional world that makes no sense. This is Michelle. She has schizophrenia. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine, but I but I can understand that just as a concept. I mean, does it does it feel like visual or or audible? Yeah, it, it yeah. feels it feels like I'm there. It feels like I'm completely there, and I'm not where I am right now until somebody like whacks me in the arm, going, "What are you talking about? What are you talking about?" Day to day, every morning I have like that fog in the morning, and then I gotta take my medicine in the morning, and then I gotta get dressed in the morning, and just make sure that everything goes together. I mean, my dream was moving to New York City, becoming a great graphic and web designer, becoming a creative director, doing this whole thing, and then I found that like you know, working in these New York City corporate jobs is really really hard when you're hallucinating in front of your face. So that's why I had to start working for myself because I just couldn't sit behind a desk and just worked for other people. I couldn't do the nine to five or nine to six grind. I, so I had to make my own job. I, I just a few hours ago was watching the, the videos you have on the Schizophrenic NYC channel um, mm -hmm. where you've recorded some of your episodes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When, when you, do you have memories, do you have memories associated with being in those episodes? Every time I, I set up that video camera because I was trying to purposely record myself, talking to myself to show people what it's like, but whenever I purposely tried to do it, I wouldn't actually do it. So I got that little security camera to just try to catch myself in moments. And the only time I realize I catch myself is after it's done and then I look through the tape. But I have no idea what I'm thinking about. I don't know where I go. I don't know what I'm talking about until, until I realize, oh, what did I just do? And then I look through the tape and I'm like, oh my God, what did I, what was I doing? What was, what was that? Who was I? Okay. You know, and then I share it because I try to show people that like, you know, people think schizophrenia is so scary and dangerous and violent, but like, no, I'm just this girl sitting on a couch talking to nobody, not hurting anyone. And this is an episode, but people think schizophrenic episodes mean you run around with a knife killing people, but no, no, no. You could just be chilling on the couch or talking in a mirror. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, one of the videos that you have on your channel is of you reacting to a, a schizophrenia simulation. Yes. And at the end, you said that struck you as accurate. That's really how it feels. That video was scary. <laughs> was that the one where everything was like talking to the guy and he was like picking up a cell phone? And I was like, pick up your phone, dude. Pick up your phone. Yeah. There was it, it was, though, because you wake up in the morning and you don't know what's going on. And you're kind of like, oh, my phone's ringing. Oh, I should pick it up. No, I don't want to pick it up. Now, what do I got to do? I got to brush my teeth. Like waking up in the morning is the biggest, is like the biggest fog in the world. And so it's like, eh? what's going on? What? I think um, he, in that simulation, there were voices telling him not to take his medication. Yeah, or... I've had those. Oh. I've had those. Yeah, especially in college. Like in college, I'd be, it would sometimes go, don't take that medication. You don't need that medication. That medication is just going to hinder you, you know? But I was on the lacrosse team in college and my lacrosse coach was very like on top of everything that I did. And like, eventually she was like, if you're not going to take your medication, don't even show up. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, that's all I need. Now I'm going to take my medication. I just needed somebody on top of me telling me, otherwise I wasn't going to take it. A few years ago, I was riding a subway train and I had had this roommate at the time that would catch me talking to myself and all of these like certain mannerisms, but I'm riding the train and I look down the subway car and there's this homeless guy talking to himself in the exact same mannerisms that I do. And then I kind of thought to myself like, well, well like I'm so lucky, but I know it sounds weird to say I'm a lucky schizophrenic person, but I am because I have my doctor, my, my support team, and I have like, you know, my friends, everything like that. If, and if I didn't have all that, I could so easily be in his position. So 
I wanted to do something that can just, you know, give back to the mental health community, help out with mentally ill homeless and just make a change because I just saw myself so much in that guy. And I just realized that like, if he had what I had, he wouldn't be that guy on the subway that people are avoiding. And if I didn't have what I have, I would be that person on the subway that people are avoiding. In 2016, Michelle started her mental health clothing brand, Schizophrenic NYC. It's going well, but she struggled initially. Even my doctor was kind of like, are you sure you want to do this? You want to tell people you have schizophrenia? Are you sure you want to do this? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, like, I spent a bunch of money, got some shirts made. And then, of course, my mother calls my doctor going, what is she doing? Is this just another crazy idea she's doing? What is she doing? Is she okay? Like everybody thought I was doing something like that was the worst idea ever. And then I ended up getting in the Daily Mail and they're like, oh, maybe you are doing something right. I usually sell at my pop-up shop in New York City. I meet all kinds of amazing people. I have shirts that have like Rorschach tests on them. Usually the Rorschach test is just plain black. So the idea is when you get a schizophrenic person to look at that plain black test, they're going to see it from a different perspective. So by, so by me changing up the patterns and colors, and everyone's forced to look at it from a different perspective, getting you to think differently and start a discussion, because only through discussion can you reduce or end stigma. And then I also have like the text tease that say, you know, don't be paranoid, you look great. It's not a delusion, you are incredible, define normal, and probably another one I can't remember right now. Or no, that I'm mentally ill and I don't kill. That's a good one. When I wear that shirt, I get a lot of looks, a lot of comments, a lot of interesting things when I walk around wearing that shirt. When I wear that shirt in the subway, I get pointed at a lot with like a thumbs up and stuff like that. That is quite a statement making shirt. You can find out more about Michelle at her website, schizophrenic.nyc. Welcome to Basecamp. I reached out to Michelle because for the past few months, I've been thinking a lot about the way we think or, or like what are, what is our experience of thinking? What happens when you pay attention to your thoughts? Do those thoughts have a sound or, uh, or, uh, or, a, or a, a smell? I, you know, well, anyway, the reason I started thinking about this, um, well, it all started with a tweet. Okay, so right now this tweet has 26.3 thousand retweets and 168.4 thousand likes. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Can you introduce yourself first? <laughs> yeah, I'm Sam. I host this show. Uh, I'm a CS student. And Jasmine just every single day has been like, please let me in the podcast. Please let me in the podcast. <laughs> I have this thing I have to tell you about. And so she's here, finally. I don't know if that's the truth, Sam. She was hesitant to even join me in the studio. But this is Jasmine. She is the one who first showed me the tweet that we're talking about. The tweet is from... Should I say who it's from? Does it... Yeah, Okay, it's, so his name is at Kyle Plant Emoji. That's his, like, handle. Mm-hmm. And it says, fun fact, some people have an internal narrative and some don't. As in some thoughts are, like, sentences they hear. And some people have an abstract, nonverbal thoughts and have to consciously verbalize them, and most people aren't aware of the other type of person. We also read this to Michelle. Okay, so here's the tweet. Fun fact, some people have an internal narrative and some don't, as in some people's thoughts are like sentences they hear, and some people just have abstract nonverbal thoughts and have to consciously verbalize them, and most people aren't aware of the other type of person. I don't even understand that. Right. <laughs> I, the idea is like um, when when you pay attention to what your thoughts feel like, some people think they can hear someone talking as their thoughts, and other people it just feels like a cloud of ideas. That's sort of the, the basis of the of the tweet. I feel like I've had both of those. Honestly, like I, I have heard like clear sentences in my head, you know, a lot of those paranoid thoughts that have gone through my head of like, you know, don't talk to anyone, don't say anything to anyone, keep your mouth shut, don't do do don't do anything. But then I've also had those thoughts in my head that are kind of like, get up in the morning. What are you doing? Getting up? You have to take your medicine? I got to take my medicine, but I need coffee, but I need to do this, but I got to get dressed. I have so many things to do. What, what can I do first? What's the best thing, you know? 
kind of wake up in that whole morning of it's the morning, there are things to do, but I don't know what to do first. And I'm just a whole big mess. So I would say I, I kind of experienced both of those things in that tweet. Okay, we will come back to Michelle later. But first, this tweet is is really popular, and I think it's really popular for two big reasons. First, it gives you a framework to fit yourself into, the same reason why personality tests are so damn fun. Like, it helps you understand yourself a little bit. Maybe it gives you a look into some basic psychology or something. And the second thing is just how confident the tweet is. The tweet starts with fun fact, as in, how fun that I did the research to provide you with this fact. You can take it face value. But spoiler alert, the tweet is wrong. It makes bad assumptions. It draws a false dichotomy. And so today, we're taking this tweet on a walk to some real experts on inner speech. And so without further ado, starting us off today... Hey, Charles, can you hear us? Hi, yeah, I can hear you. How are you? Dr. Charles Ferniehow. I'm a professor of psychology at Durham University in the UK. Uh, my background is in developmental psychology, so I was interested in the development of social cognition or the ability to understand other minds, development of thinking in babies and young children. And over time, that turned into an interest in inner speech. And then I, I started to think about how inner speech functions in adults and how it might uh, function slightly differently in in more unusual um, experiences. Could you define what inner speech is as you know it and maybe also differentiate it from uh, a thought? Yeah, inner speech is the, the stuff that goes on silently in our heads when we're just not doing anything in particular, when we're walking to a lecture or waiting for a bus or, or when we're thinking through a problem, doing something a bit more focused. Uh, it's also known as internal monologue, internal dialogue, self-talk, covert self-talk. It's got a whole range of different terms and also the term inner voice is used. But I avoid that term because it has all sorts of other connotations which aren't really part of the scientific description. So the correct scientific term is inner speech and it covers really everything that goes on in your head that happens in language or partly in language. So it covers a whole range of different things and it has a whole range of different uses and functions you know we think we're in control of our inner speech and we do inner speech as a deliberate act but much of the time the language in our heads is just popping into our heads and we can't really say we made it happen it's very often spontaneous and lacking in voluntary control so you can see that's one of the ways in which the two things start to blur and just um to so that i can be clear on some terminology Inner speech is not a form of hallucination. No, a hallucination is seen as something where you have a perceptual experience of something that isn't really there, but that also has the kind of emotional force that would, have, that would happen if the thing were really there. So if I hallucinate a tiger in the corner of my room, I'm going to have an emotional reaction to that. I'm going to think, wow, there's a tiger there, and that's going to make me feel a certain way that's different to imagining a tiger in the corner of my room. So inner speech seems to have some connections with hallucination, but it's not the same thing. We can, we can separate the two things out. I asked Charles if he would explain two specific experiments from his research. The, the first one you talked about, the dialogic inner speech experiment, we basically got people producing in, in the scanner, they were either producing an internal dialogue or they were producing an internal monologue. So the way we set that up is that we gave people a scenario. So we'd say to people, imagine you've gone back to your old school. And in one condition, and they, in both conditions, they had to generate some inner speech. In one condition, they were talking to a group of students. So like they're standing up on the stage in the assembly hall and giving a speech to a bunch of students. So it had a social dimension in that there were people in the room, but those people in the room weren't talking back. So that's what we call the monologic condition, where you're just speaking. In the dialogic condition, in the same scenario, you're having a conversation with your old head teacher. So you're saying something and she's saying something back and you're saying something and so on. So we use that difference between the monologic and the dialogic 
scenario, trying to keep everything else the same as much as we could. And we looked at the difference between what happens if you're doing uh, dialogic inner speech compared to the monologic inner speech. And that's how we were able to trace this conjunction between both the, the inner speech system and the social cognition system. Now that was an example of a, a conventional neuroimaging study where you kind of tell people what to do in the scanner. The work with Russ Halbert was, was more um, interesting and original, I think, and, and groundbreaking uh, in many ways, because what we were able to do there is use this very sophisticated experience sampling method to catch what was really going on in people's heads spontaneously and compare it to the situation where we told people what to do in the scanner. So all of the research that had been done on inner speech up until then in the scanner had been about telling people to go in there and, and produce some inner speech and actually telling them what they were supposed to say to themselves in inner speech. So we did that, we did the conventional way of capturing inner speech and we got exactly the kind of neural patterns of activation that you'd expect. But because they were also being beat in the scanner, we were doing this experience sampling method in the scanner. We were, we were able to catch lots of moments of experience where they were doing inner speech, but not because we told them to, but because they just happened to be doing inner speech at that moment and we captured it. The way we capture it is this, was we use this method, as I say, and the way that works is you wear this little beeper, um, which is attached to your, your clothing, and you've got an earpiece going into your ear, and every so often at random intervals, this thing will beep, so it lets out a beep. And over time, over a period of days, you learn that that's your cue to, to start thinking about making notes on the moment of experience just before the beep went off. And what you do is you make some quick notes for yourself about that moment of experience. And then the next day you come into the lab and you have an interview with us. And we go through in great detail each of those moments, each of those beeps. And that's a really hard thing to do when you start doing it. We would all, we'd all be terrible at doing it on day one, but you get better at it over time. With that practice, you get most people get really good at it. Most people get really good at zooming in on what's, what's in their experience in that little moment and cutting out everything else, not telling us about everything else because everything else doesn't fit in that moment and therefore we don't want to know about it. We just want to know what was in your, in your experience at that moment. So the people we did the neuroimaging with had already spent several days doing this technique and getting good at it. So they were experienced experience samplers and so that we knew that they would be able to perform the task in the scanner. So what we were able to show is we were able to ask the question, does the neural pattern of activation when you're doing inner speech because someone told you to do it, does that match the pattern of act activation you get when you're doing inner speech spontaneously and we happen to capture it using this method? And but without going into all the details, it didn't match. There were very, it was almost like a completely different pattern of activation between the two conditions. And that made us think, firstly, we need to do more of this. We need to do this again with a bigger sample. We need to try out different, you know, we need to refine the method some more. But secondly, if this is true, if this holds up, then it has real implications for how we go about doing neuroscience because we can't just assume that if we put someone in a scanner and ask them to do a particular thing that we're interested in, we can assume they'll do something like it. They'll do some version of it, but it won't necessarily have much in common with the thing that we, we really want to try and capture. In both the experiments, did certain people um, seem to lack an inner speech or like just not have those paths of activation light up? Or did, was it just universal that almost everyone who was in these trials had those inner speech paths of activation lighting up. We had, we had in this experiment, we had five participants, which is a small number of participants, but each one is generating a very large body of data, a very rich body of data. Um, and the reason we, we had a small sample is that it's, um, it's a very labor intensive process. Each of these people mm -hmm. were working for two weeks 
doing the study. So it's extremely labor intensive, but we, we've got enough because of the way the experiment's designed, we had enough statistical power to find the things that we were interested in. Now of those five participants, they, there was a huge variation. Some people were doing a lot, a lot of inner speech and some people were not doing that much at all. So the question which has been on everyone's lips for the last couple of months, do some people not have inner speech? Is one we cannot answer. We actually don't have any decent data on this. And the reason, it, the reason we don't have any decent data on it is that it's a very difficult thing to ask because it involves the person you're asking having all sorts of, firstly, knowing what we mean by inner speech. And it involves the person we're asking to have a good grasp on their own experience. And you might think that your own experience is the easiest thing of all to report on. But actually it's not. We come to this question with so many preconceptions about what kind of mind we have. And the nice, the, the, the amazing thing about DES, this method, is that very often people find they've got different minds to the ones they thought they had. And people find that really interesting and quite liberating and not, not a negative thing at all, a very, very positive thing. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, does everybody have inner speech? I'd have said, yeah, pretty much everyone has inner speech. Now I would say, I think there's a significant minority of people who never do it. But I don't, don't really have good grounds for saying that. Um, and I think Russ's work, he's been using this method for 40 years or so, and he has found plenty of people who don't have any inner speech. But I, in terms of giving you a percentage of the population, it depends on how you construct, how you define inner speech, it depends on people's ability to report on their own experience, it depends on what you mean by never, never, ever, ever in your whole life, <laughs> or do you mean not using it regularly? I think there are a lot of people who don't use it regularly. Another complication is that something else that happens to inner speech as it turns into, uh, you need to kind of tell the developmental story here. Basically, inner speech is supposed to come from the social conversations we have as children and they become gradually internalized over development. And what happens during that process is that inner speech becomes condensed, it becomes abbreviated. We think it becomes more like a note form version of what you might say out loud to another person. So it's stripped down, it's condensed, it's compressed. Now, if that condensation happens to to the max to a great extent then your inner speech is really not going to have much of the language quality about it it's going to be very it's almost going to be like language without the sound without the accent without the tone without the pitch and so on so for a lot of people they might be having this kind of inner speech but if you ask them the question, do you talk to yourself? They, they kind of think, oh, do I talk to myself in full sentences out, you know, as if I was speaking out loud? And they'd say no, so I don't have inner speech. But actually, they are doing kind of inner speech. And we are just not scientifically equipped yet to answer that question properly. So there's been an awful lot of generalization. It's fascinating how, how much of a story this became, how interested people are in this question. But sadly, there's very little decent data on which to make any observation. I find that people are so interested, points to us maybe one day being able to get some good science on that topic, but at the moment we don't really. Do you think I could, we, the reason that we're doing this episode, it started with a, with a tweet. And I was wondering if I could read you that tweet and just get your reaction to it. Or maybe Jasmine will. Yeah, I think I know the one, but go for it. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Probably. So it was the fun fact some people have an internal narrative and some don't, as in some people's thoughts are like sentences they hear, and some people just have abstract nonverbal thoughts and have to consciously verbalize them. And most people aren't aware of the other type of person. Yeah, that's the one I about. <laughs> it's created a, a lot of attention. It's kind of strange in that I did a lot of media about this topic. Um, three, four years ago, including lots of things in the States, all around the world. 
Um, maybe it's because this tweet, I think, uses the term internal monologue, and I talk about it in a speech. So I felt like I'd said a lot of these things already, and the, and the world mm -hmm. was just having a new conversation um, from scratch. But yeah, there is, a, there is a decent amount of evidence on this. My book, The Voices Within, goes into all the um, research, pretty much, that's been done on inner speech. It's not a, it's not a, not a great deal, but it's enough to, to fill in a book, um, an interesting book, I think. It doesn't have an answer to that question for reasons I've, I've said. And I, as far as I know, there are no grounds for saying, I think there are anecdotal grounds for saying that some people don't have inner speech. I'm pretty sure that's true. We don't have any grounds for saying what proportion of people don't have inner speech. And I don't think we have any grounds at all for saying that those who, those in one group don't know about the other group, except that so many people in response to that tweet and the other stuff that happened around it said, OMG, there are people who don't have an internal monologue, which I guess maybe does answer that question, but it's not really a, a scientific finding of any kind. Um, I was, there's another set of terms that you use in your Royal Institution Lecture, the difference between uh, condensed and expanded inner speech, which struck me as, as lining up with at least some idea in that tweet a little bit. Yeah, this was the idea that I, I was um, describing a, a minute or two ago, the idea that when, as a lot of the time the inner speech we do is highly condensed and it's like a note form version of what we'd say out loud. And sometimes, I think in particular when we're under stress, when we're dealing with something really difficult, we're mo much more likely to have a kind of internal dialogue that is full, fully formed sentences, just as if you were having a dialogue with another person out loud. I, I suspect that's the min minority of times. But until we started looking at this topic nearly 10 years ago, Nobody had ever asked the question. Nobody had ever said, "What does inner, you know, does inner speech come in different forms? Does it take these different uh, forms?" And I think we've shown in a few studies now that yeah, people do endorse this dialogic conception. They they say that is something relevant to my inner speech, and they also endorse the condensed conception as well. So it does seem to be a, a real thing about some people's inner speech. Now, as I say, the some of the people who say they don't use any inner speech might just be doing an awful lot of condensed inner speech and not very much at all or, or none at all of the expanded form. That could be the case, we don't really know. And actually we get into a really tricky territory when if you think about condensed inner speech as language from which all the acoustic quality has been stripped away, well, firstly, what is that? philosophically, linguistically, what, what is language without any of the sound? We, we don't have great theories. We certainly don't have a consensus about how to describe that. And secondly, how on earth do you study it? How do you distinguish that kind of experience from what the tweet calls abstract thought? And Russ um, has a category called unsymbolized thinking, which is something that shows up quite a bit in his sampling where the thought, the experience, doesn't seem to have any kind of perceptual form at all. It's not in vision, it's, it's not in visual imagery, it's not in language and so on. He and I kind of disagree a bit on that because I think at least some of those moments are very, very highly condensed in a speech. But I can't prove that. And actually, this might be a way in which making further progress with the neuroscience does start to help us because if we can show that there's a particular neural signature for highly condensed inner speech, and then there's a different neural signature for unsymbolized thinking, then we'd be starting to get somewhere, but we're not there yet. Uh, is there anything that you wish people were asking you about? Like, are we, are we in the wrong direction? Are we asking the wrong questions? Well, I think, with this, um, I was interested in, in the response to this tweet, the kind of daily deluge of responses of how lots of people seem to be saying, why has nobody ever studied that? You know, why, <laughs> on this? And I got a bit frustrated because there's a lot of science on it and I've done a fair bit of the science and I wrote a whole book on the topic. So I wish people would 
engage with you know the plenty, plenty of resources out there there's plenty of stuff online that tells us about inner speech um, and I think the key thing is to have a more sophisticated understanding of it as I say there's a lot that's positive about this internet interest because it shows that people really are fascinated by their own experience and by other people's experience and that's great that's what drives the science you know that's what drives our curiosity and think I think thinking about one's own inner experience a bit more deeply can be really liberating and instructive and some people found it a bit freaky to be honest I mean when they read you know often people said oh I read your book and now I can't think in the same way anymore because I'm constantly attending to my own thought processes and I say I say don't worry that will pass and it does pass you know you think you know you get interested in it for a week or so and then you get back to your regular life and that's how it should be um so I think a greater curiosity about our own experience is good a lot of people find it very beneficial um particularly people who are bothered by their own experience who are bothered by aspects of what goes on in their heads so when I now that I've done all this research, I don't get at all distressed if a thought pops into my head, even a nasty thought. I just have this view of my brain as this factory that's just churning out stuff all day long. And much of it isn't really anything to do with me. And that gives me a way of distancing myself from it and being and, and staying sane. So I think that curiosity is a good thing, but I think being aware of difference is the key and that's another thing I think that this um, this media frenzy has, has been useful for because it does show you it underlines how we're all different how what's normal for one person is really atypical for someone else and that diversity is a wonderful thing it means we can never make a claim like you know some people have made in the past that all thinking happens in words it's just no way We're, people are too different making those sorts of universal claims about people's experience isn't going to wash because people are so different and their own experience is so different <clears throat> everybody's inner speech i think takes all these different forms if they have inner speech and that's a wonderful thing as i say it gives us lots to work with scientifically it opens up lots of interesting questions and I think we'll still be studying this topic for a long time to come. You can find links to Charles' most recent book, The Voices Within, as well as his website, in the show description. One more important note, if you or someone you know has been hearing voices uh, and you're uncomfortable with them or you would like help understanding them, Charles and his team have recently launched a project meant to help with just that. The website is understandingvoices.com, which I have also linked in the description of the episode. Joining us next, let's see. Okay, Famira Racy. So my master's is in industrial organizational psychology. It's basically the psychology of how we how we think uh, at work. So I coach people in personal and professional development, and I consult with people on things like workplace wellness, group dynamics, emotional intelligence, stuff like that, culture. I've been the coordinator and co-researcher 
at Alain Morin's Inner Speech Lab at Mount Royal University in Calgary, Canada for a while since 2015. Is it okay for me to shout out to my team? Of course, please. Yeah, our team, amazing team. Alain is, of course, our principal investigator, but he really encourages methodology considerations. He wants us to contribute our ideas. And so we have a pretty strong team. Christina Dugnich, Julia Haggerty, and James Patton. Shout out to all y'all. And naturally, one of the first things that I asked Famira was just... I was wondering if I could just read you that tweet and get your reaction to it. Sure. What she thought of the tweet. Mm. Yes. Um, interesting that you raised that, but my first reaction to this and a lot of the other ones is... Um, people aren't really that familiar with their inner experiences. Famira told me that researchers have been able to break our inner experiences into essentially five categories. First, inner speech, or what we can think of as a verbal inner experience. Second, inner seeing, or our visual inner experience. Third, feeling, emotional experience. Fourth, sensory awareness. And finally, unsymbolized thinking which is described in the paper as, quote, differentiated thoughts that occurred with no experience of words, images, or other symbols that might carry meaning, unquote. Russell Hurlbert is the guy who found that one out. Very interesting research on descriptive experience sampling. I've noticed a lot of people are really worried that they do or don't have these certain inner experiences. Well, it's actually, it's pretty natural and pretty normal to actually not even really be that familiar with your inner experiences. But if you take the time, you might actually notice that there's things going on there that you may or may not have been aware of before. And there's lots of evidence to show that People most likely have inner speech unless there's some sort of serious trauma or brain injury or problems with areas associated in the brain with like production and comprehension of speech. Yeah, yeah, no, um, it, it's sort of a fun game to play when if, if you don't spend time thinking about this, I mm -hmm. imagine. Uh, oh, you're, you're this type or this type, it's like taking a personality test. Yeah, unfortunately, it's definitely not that cut and dry. Right. Like, there's a lot of inner experiences, and they they can overlap in very um, intricate ways. Like, you can't really slice it up as much as we would like to. It's just not that easy. What's your personal experience of inner speech? And also, has it has it changed at all as as you've studied it? Uh, yes. So I can say that I'm an individual who has experienced a lot of anxiety, which I don't think is really uncommon in this day and age for a lot of people. Um, and with that anxiety, like quite a long time ago, I had what is known as ruminative inner speech. My experience was a repetitive, critical inner voice. Do you think I could ask you to sort of paint me a picture of what, what it used to sound like in your oh, head? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, I'd be sitting there trying to figure out what I need to do next. So, like, self-regulation, self-control. And inner speech would pop up and just start saying things like, why are you dot, dot, dot? What about dot, dot, dot? Don't you need to dot, dot, dot? And so, like... It would start with like inner speech and then the rest of the thought would just fill in like what about these 500 other million things that you need to do or like what about these a thousand other different ways you could be doing this or you'd have to stop and be like why am I asking myself so many freaking questions and let's get back to what do I actually need to be doing the inner speech would be like automatic. Why blah, 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 blah. But then I would also use effortful inner dialogue, like chatting with myself to curb that and to move myself on and to do something productive. 
Leary is a really good guy to look at if you're into wondering about like the dark side of self-awareness or the curse of the self like meditation and mindfulness is all great and everything and it can help take us away from over self-immersion and rumination and like just like drowning in self-awareness so yeah oh could you could you say that name again for the, the dark side of meditation oh the book is called the curse of the self and it's by a guy named leary like he would say there's a little quote from him by allowing people to ruminate about the past or imagine what might happen in the future self-reflection and i add like in this form um conjures up a great deal of personal suffering in the forms of depression anxiety anger jealousy and other negative emotions so in an age of anxiety where we're all like constantly emerged immersed in ourselves it is important i think to like step back and use these like decentering tools um so that we don't drown in like rumination and anxiety and like too much self-awareness what i think is so interesting about this is that a lot of us have thoughts like this i feel like i'd be more surprised to meet someone who says they don't ever have thoughts questioning their own behavior or doing something self-critical but at the same time i would have never considered that there's a there's a way we can put those thoughts so directly under the microscope in the way that famira is doing can we talk about the the gisq oh sure so the gisq is the general inner speech questionnaire the team started with a very open-ended questionnaire to get a feel for how people categorize their own thoughts. And so we used all of those different themes that came out uh, of these people's open-ended responses, and we constructed the GISQ using that. So basically wrote questions based on all that stuff that emerged, like problem-solving, planning, like emotional control. Well, we we intended it to just measure the degree that people talk to themselves silently in general about like various self-related stuff. And the questions were things like I talk to myself about positive emotions, like rate me on a zero to five scale from like zero being never to five being like all the time. After turning all of those into questions and getting a bunch of people to answer them, so there's like 57 questions altogether, we found that the results were super, super similar to like the open format one where people were reporting talking to themselves about like negative emotions and problem solving. It was the same for this questionnaire. So pretty much the same results. They most often talk to themselves about negative emotions when ruminating in order to problem solve, to plan, to motivate, to control emotions, like to use their language. Uh, they do it a lot when they're just performing hygiene or like getting in and out of bed People talk to themselves when they want to rely on themselves or like to rehearse something ahead of time. And they talk to themselves a lot about people around them and their friends and their family. And and so it turned out our GISQ pilot, it ended up representing tons of things we didn't really see coming. Like it wasn't just self-regulation and like self-awareness. It was like self-reinforcement and self-criticism, which some other scales do kind of capture as well, but also cognition, emotions, bodily awareness, self-management, which other scales also capture, um, goals, coping, relationships, um, other people, mental time travel. So like thinking about your past and your future and your autobiography like the narrative of yourself and who you are for and for so many things like language i'm not quite sure how to word this question so i'm going to start it and hopefully it'll sound coherent when when you're thinking about someone talking to themselves it's sort of it's sort of strange right because uh, they're both the they're both the initializer and receiver of of both sides of the 
of the quote unquote conversation. Mm-hmm. Are, are though, when someone's talking to themselves, do you see that inner speech as, as, um, as like a reflection of something happening subconsciously? Like how much, how much new processing do you imagine is being done by, by inner speech or, or is we're seeing when we think about our own inner speech? Um, that is a very good question. Um, in fact, inner speech is, we're thinking it's basically like a mirror. So you need to re-represent the information to yourself in order to understand it, uh, comprehend it, and synthesize new ideas and build on top of it. So like inner speech is basically reflecting information, allowing you to like synthesize it. And yeah, for sure some new processing is happening. You're actually building things like self-awareness and self-concept and like beliefs and ideas. Like every time you use inner speech to re-represent something to yourself, like something new is probably going to happen. Yeah, I definitely see inner speech as a mirror that allows for processing of new information. One of your guiding questions was like, what are what are the functions of inner speech? Inner speech is a mirror that helps you learn about like yourself, your world around you, your social world, all kinds of things. And when you put questions to yourself, you're bound to get new information. So like research already shows that inner speech for sure helps you with your self-regulation. Like just re-representing information will just like help you figure out what you need to do, uh, how you want to feel or how you should feel or can help you resist temptation and delay gratification but like Alain our principal investigator his main theoretical work has always been like inner speech is the tool for self-awareness knowing who you are knowing the world around you knowing other people so for sure yeah I really I like the way you put that that's I would have to agree Going forward, Famira and her team are conducting similar research in a variety of countries, in part to examine the cultural effects on inner speech. Yeah, I mean, people probably have different inner speech. Like, self-criticism is probably different in collectivist cultures because they're probably being critical for different reasons than we would be here in like a more individualistic culture, for example, like um, we care about like what we look like and how we're doing because we care about our like individual social status, just in general, I'm not trying to say like everybody's like that, but, and then in a collectivist culture, it could be more that like people are, could be if they're self-criticizing it's to make sure that they're doing something right for like the benefit of the group or something i mean there's we're very interested in how culture plays roles in the way we think and how we talk to ourselves oh man um yeah that's exciting right i love it yeah I'll have more information on Famira and the Inner Speech Lab's work in the episode description. I was also hoping to talk to Famira about her team's more recent paper on creating inner speech and artificial intelligence, but due to some time constraints during the recording, we unfortunately uh, are going to have to save that for another podcast. Sorry, Famira. Oh, no, it's been a delight to chat with you, and uh, yeah, I look forward to connecting again next time. final guest is Dr. Nancy Irwin. She's a licensed clinical psychologist and a certified hypnotherapist, but before her career in medicine, she spent many years as a professional stand-up comedian. 
was at the improv. Absolutely. When I worked there, Robin Williams would step into the club and everybody would just panic. <laughs> so intimidated. It was crazy. It's a wonderful, wonderful art form. I still go out and watch shows. I watch, you know, oh, Dave Chappelle. Oh, I worked with him when he was 14 freaking years old. And he had to have his manager in the club with him because he was too young to even be there. He was about the skinny slip of a kid, but you could see the genius there that early. Oh, wow. More on that later. But first, I just wanted to understand a little more about what hypnotherapy is. Could you talk a little bit specifically about hypnosis as a tool for that? Like, what does that look like in a clinical setting? The first session, I take a great deal of time explaining scientifically how hypnosis works. Because here's the deal. Uh, as a comic, I worked with, with hypnotists on stage quite often. And so I thought, oh, here's this silly thing. It's cute. It's funny. So when I was working on my doctorate in psychology, they do present to you hypnosis. And I was like, oh, this is so stupid. Why are we bothering? Well, I learned that therapeutic hypnosis is entirely different than stage hypnosis. Stage hypnosis is real, but those people want to be hams. They want to sing like Elvis or squawk like a chicken or whatever. So the stage hypnotist is trained to look at body language, to know who has that open-mindedness like a child and is dying to get up there and do this or that, the funny stuff, for the good of their show. If somebody's cynical and looks like that, they ain't going to pick them because that's going to blow their show. So, but with therapeutic, it's completely different. People come into my office with real life concerns. They flunk the bar five times and they really need to pass it this time. They want to stop smoking. They want to get off drugs. They want to enhance their relationship. Um, they want to enhance their sports. I love working with athletes. They're dream clients because they're very open-minded and they've been coached their whole lives. So they, and that's a form of taking a suggestion, which is all hypnosis is. Sorry, I got off track. But what I do in the first session in hypnosis uh, in a session is I take a great deal of time explaining how the mind processes information and how we are all our own master self hypnotists. And I draw out a model of the mind and show you that, well, the conscious mind is only about 5% of all our mental capabilities. That means we have fully 95% that comes from the unconscious, which is where all behavior comes from. So to change any behavior, you need to go into the unconscious and be aware of what your limiting negative beliefs have been about that habit and shift it. So we find out in the clinic what the underlying belief is and change that to stop harming the self or others as the case may be. People start smoking because they want to look cool, macho, older, sexy, glamorous. Hell, I started smoking because a cute guy taught me how to smoke. It's always a guy's fault. <laughs> so every time I picked up a cigarette, this was unconscious. I didn't realize it. But deep down, what I was really after was, oh, I look cuter to, to cute guys when I'm smoking. How insane is that? Yet how common. And there's always a payoff like that. Always a positive intent, which can be changed for a conscious awareness of what you'd like your intent to be now. The, so this, our, our working title for this show is the voices in your head and and we're and we've been thinking a lot about how we talk to ourselves and what that thinking means do you think you could connect that which you just talked about to to what people really hear on a on a moment to moment basis like what 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 someone's really experiencing absolutely great question because we all have at least 100,000 thoughts a day they're not all going to be positive. Even the Zen masters and the Dalai Lamas, I haven't met him. But I got to tell you, everybody, even Tony Robbins, the people that are the most evolved in thinking, they know how to manage their thoughts. But you're a human being. We're not robots. We're not machines. We're always going to have some negative thought to the day we die. However, 
we can become acutely aware of those thoughts and neutralize them or and transmute them into something finer. For example, people who have um, uh, maybe grown up very severely criticized by a parent or someone or bullied may have a chronic thought, I'm such a loser. Of course I got fired. This always happens to me. I'm an idiot. We want to be very respectful of where that pain come from, uh, came from and know that it's not the natural thought of any human being because you learned that. That's all learned. Every precious baby comes into this world knowing they're cute enough, smart enough, the right race, the right gender. And then the world gets in the way at some point and goes, you're too this, you're too that. And that's all BS. That's someone else's belief. Now, kids are very impressionable. They, they live in a world, they're pure hypnosis. Little brains, absolutely, until about the age eight to 12, Kids believe everything, Santa Claus, Tooth Fairy. So they're very easy to manipulate. This is why we have to be very careful about what we say and do and model to them because they're little sponges taking it in. So if a kid hears or it's even non-verbally communicated to him or her, you're such a loser. You didn't grow up and be an idiot like your father. They take that in and that can become an underlying belief system. And that stops them from succeeding and going to the next level. So what I do is explaining this. So before I even hypnotize somebody and I'm explaining how this works, most people are going, oh my God, you're right. Every time I hear you're a loser, it's really my mother's voice or that first teacher or someone like that. Not to blame anybody, because we all had some degree of that, but to be responsible and see that you're not damaged goods. There's nothing wrong with you. You learn to have these negative beliefs. And again, whatever we've learned, we can unlearn. I was wondering if I could read you a tweet and just get your reaction to it. Sure. Fun fact. Some people have an internal narrative and some don't. As in, some people's thoughts are like sentences they hear, and some people just have an abstract, nonverbal thoughts, and they have to consciously verbalize them. And most aren't aware of the other type of person. I respectfully disagree with that. I think it's born out of pain. We all have thoughts. Even in your dream, it, it, when you're sleeping, you're having thoughts. We call them dreams or nightmares. We're all, we're thinking creatures. You don't want to turn your brain off because it's there to help you survive and figure things out and use abstract skills, et cetera. So no one doesn't have thoughts. Every word in every language represents some sort of picture. And you can easily see it with a little child who's just learning a language. If you say, Bobby, don't slam that door. What's Bobby probably going to do? probably gonna slam the door. Here's why, not because he's stupid. It's because the brain cannot process a negative. How do you see a picture of a not or a don't or a never? But you can easily see a picture of slam the door. Easier said than done, but smart parents will try to say, honey, I need you to close the door gently whole different picture, right? Well, this is going through the head again about a hundred thousand times a day. That's a lot of movies that we're running through our head daily, right? So if you're a baseball player and you get up to home plate and you go, oh my God, don't strike out. What are you probably going to do? Yeah, you're going to, um, uh, that's a heavily charged image and you're probably going to choke and not perform well. Does it mean if you focus on smashing that ball to the next county, you will? Not every time, but they usually perform much better. So again, athletes love hearing this. And you know who was absolutely a master self-hypnotist? I don't know if he was trained or not. Muhammad Ali. The self-talk. I'm pretty too. I'm gonna, you know, be the gorilla in Manila, all of that absolutely psyching out his opponent, puffing himself up. But on some level, he absolutely believed his all his 
self-affirmations. Of course, he had little talent and he trained, of course. Athletes have to train. It's not just thinking happy thoughts. It's way beyond that. But when you have a clear image of a realistic goal and you language it appropriately, that's how you have success in anything. Instead of saying, don't smoke, you're still picturing images of smoking. You focus on, I'm breathing in nothing but fresh air, what my lungs were designed to handle. Um, I'm wondering if, uh, hmm. when you when you perform stand-up and you tell the same jokes over and over every night to, to get them right and to, to get the emotional path correct, um, you have to, I think you have to master whatever emotion you're trying to put out. You have to be a, a really good actor in, in, to be a, a stand-up comedian. You have to be able to act what, what you're saying. Um, I'm wondering if, if you, what you see the connection between what you do now and what you did then as. Mm. I, I think there's a strong psychological presence in, in stand-up. I wonder oh. if Absolutely. Most people are there in an attempt to work out their own stuff. It's absolute therapy when it's done well. There's some people who've got in more trouble because of it, because they over identify, for example, with their anger or their low self-esteem, which can be in the cynicism. It could be terribly funny, but it can also really erode the spirit if people buy into it on a deep level. I saw Unfortunately, way too many suicides, as if one wouldn't be too much. And a lot of people, you know, take up with horrible addictive behaviors and the self-hatred grew because that was sort of their identity, even though it could be funny. Um, so, yeah, it absolutely can be a therapeutic experience. It was for me. I got to express myself and say things that coming from where I came from, I wasn't allowed to say. And um, I always ended up saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And I thought, why don't I do this for a living? I'm pretty good at it. So <laughs> I cashed in on the irreverence and found a place where it was fully acceptable. And I think a lot of comics come from that place. They're dying to express themselves. And the world, like I said, is always going, don't say that. Don't be that. Don't think that. So it's a way to take off those bonds and absolutely free the spirit. So yes, it could be terribly freeing to do so. You know, there's somebody like Robin Williams, who was, well, not even enough words to describe how that mind worked, but absolute stream of consciousness, but it was connecting with others, allowing others to see how he saw the world, and boy, he made a lot of connections. You can learn more about Nancy's work at drnancyirwin.com, or at the link in the description. Thank you so much. Uh, My pleasure, guys. Day. You too. Be well. You Thanks. as well. Thank you for listening. Basecamp is produced by myself, Sam Golden, temporarily out of my house in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Our theme music is by Joshua Valentine. Our show art is by Samantha Newman. And today, all the filler keyboard was improvised by me. Huge, huge, huge thank you to Jasmine for being the best co-producer I could ever ask for. And thank you again to our guests, Michelle Hammer, Famira Racy, Charles Fernihow, and Nancy Irwin. Special thanks also to Nate Irving, Alex Montgomery, Marcel Suarez, my brother Aaron, and my mom for their help. You've just listened to part one of the Voices of 
in your head. Next week, we'll be releasing part two, and it will focus on meditation. Very exciting. If you have something you'd like to say to me, please email me at basecampshow at gmail.com or find me on Instagram at Samuel B. Golden. All right, thanks. Bye. Um, maybe a strange question. Is, is, do you, is there anything that you wish someone would ask you about? Is there anything that you, you never feel like gets covered in these interviews that you've been doing? Let's think. Let me think about that one. Something that doesn't get covered is... Maybe like, do I like my life? <laughs> I'd love to know that, please. I, do, I mean, it's, it's like sometimes people think like, you know, I must not like my life because I have schizophrenia or something like that. But no, I, I, I love my life. I think my life is great. I'm the happiest I've ever been. Things might have been bad in the past, but that's over with. And now, you know, I'm on the medication that works. I go to the doctors that works and I'm living the, the best life I could possibly have right now. And I'm happy about that. And I don't like let anything hold me back. I just live my life how I want to live it and it's going really well and I'm happy about that and I, I you know schizophrenia isn't ruining my life it doesn't ruin my life you know I've met great people because of it and I think everything is going good <laughs>